Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. The Stankwaddy game. Shall I go first? I'm going to go first. Go on, go first. You're obviously, you've made your mind up. I've made my you're mind standing up. Standing confident. I've got a category. It's the category is Psycho Billy. Psycho oh, that's Billy. good. Okay, so that's Rockabilly for people who went to university. Okay, that's good. Like that, right? Yes, Psycho Billy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rockabilly for people who, who watch late night terrible films and so forth. Okay, these are five groups. Okay, one of them is a completely fictitious construct. All right. But the other Try four me. are real. Okay, are you ready? Swamp Trash, The Termites, Elvis Hitler, The Deadly Wasps, and Southern Culture on the Skids. Those five again. Swamp Trash, The Termites, Elvis Hitler, The Deadly Wasps and Southern Culture on the Skids. Which of those is a product of my fecund imagination? Wow. Swamp trash, I think, sounds real. A lot of psychobilly was about... um, Yeah, it was about that kind of... uh, uh, kind of unspeakable uh, uh, landscapes. Um, uh, You know, it's a sort of science fiction kind of rockabilly, wasn't it? So Swamp Trash, I think, is real. Termites, possibly. Elvis Hitler, I'm sure I've heard of, actually. Deadly Wasps is a possibility, isn't it? And what was the last one? Southern, Southern, Southern culture, culture on the skids. That's, that's so weird, I think it's actually real. Dave, I'm going to say it's the termites. I don't know why I'm saying that you've made I up win! The... I okay, win. go on. The termites are real. It's the I'd made up the deadly wasps, which you oh, should that's good. because it's so much inspired by the termites, isn't it? It okay. is. It is. But it's a Crickets Beatles relationship. Yeah. Swamp trash. The termites. Uh, Elvis Hitler and Southern culture and the, and the skids on the skids were all real. Okay. Over. You to win. You. All right. Okay. Okay. Right. Slight slight uh, deviation here. Tons of musicians have made the often uh, unwise choice to appear in movies. So here are six brief cameo film appearances by rock stars. Five of them actually happened. One is a figment of my imagination. All right. Okay. 
Let's Here go. they are, the six. Dave Grohl appeared as Beelzebos, <laughs> uh, a giant Satan-esque monster in Tenacious D, The Pick of Destiny. <laughs> Jack White appeared as Elvis Presley in the music biopic parody Walk Hard. Okay. Björk had a cameo as the fortune teller Tova in the Swedish murder mystery, The Orchid Gardener. All right. Alanis Morissette appeared in a religious comedy dogma called, a religious comedy called Dogma, playing the part of God. <clears throat> and David Crosby turned up as a pirate in Steven Spielberg's Hook. Oh. So shall I give you those again very briefly? That's oh, Dave Grohl as Beelzebos. Jack White turning up as Elvis Presley. Björk as the fortune teller Tova. Alanis Morissette in a religious comedy playing the part of God. And David Crosby as a pirate. Well, they, they, it's a really good list because they sound exactly like the kind of ludicrous things people do. Terrible parts in what sound like genuinely terrible films, you know, where everybody... No, thinks, that's right, because you would have heard of those films, yeah, probably. Yeah, everybody you might thinks, have seen those films if there'd been any good, but it's, kind of, it's all wacky and really... <laughs> it awesome, is, you know, it but, is, it is. But I'm going to say that the one you've made up is David Crosby. Oh, my Lord! Are you being generous there or not? That's very sweet of you. You, you, you really did Okay. No, he, I didn't mean that. That's true. He really does appear in Hook. He and does I'm appear in Hook. And no, 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 that's one. Phil Collins is in it too, actually. And there's another, someone else plays a part. I can't remember who, but Phil Collins is in Hook too. Um, but no, the one I made up was Björk. Oh, wow. I thought that's the kind of thing she would do as a kind oh, of she teenage, would. starting out, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, trying to get the career going, doing a bit, a bit of teenage acting. Or whatever. Well, she was, she, wasn't she, she was a child star, wasn't she? Girl? She was a child Back star, in. and she was in a Lars Van Trier movie uh, about whatever it was, 10 or 12 years ago. Very controversial. That's she fell out with him dramatically. Sounds enormous fun. But the sun, <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> That'll get us all back to the cinema. Actually, I was talking to my son yesterday. He'd been back to the cinema with his wife to to see, was it Tenet? You know, the the one that everybody's talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, the people who go to the cinema are talking about anyway. And uh, he'd gone to a flash near this new cinema in Islington where they live. And... uh, and, uh, and, you know, obviously you get drinks and obviously you get a nice seat, but now you get food and so forth, you know. And they're very keen to sell you up on all this stuff. I said, so, so how much did this cost? Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> he said, I know. well, I thought it was kind of reasonable. Don't, don't tell me, because in fact, it's just a standard ticket in somewhere kind of even not very nice is about 14 quid, isn't <laughs> it? <laughs> but a standard ticket is that we got, we got the Barnes Olympic around the corner from us, you know, the old studio, the old yeah, yeah. Zeppelin rolling sets, you know, you know, you get your double seats, your kind of bonquettes with your, with your with your drinks delivered and all that. And that is massively pricey. So go on, I'm saying it's got to be near the 20 mark. Well, no, they paid. Now, they had drinks and some food, okay, and they saw the film. 40 pounds each. Jesus. <laughs> I can't say that's a night of the pictures. But, you that's know, a you... film. It's a film that's not even seeing real people on stage. <laughs> it's not even theatre. <laughs> that's incredible. And it's, really, it's quite interesting. I've been following on social, social media that the fallout of people who've been to see this film, uh, and it, which seems to fall in one of two camps. Uh, they, they're either going to say, I didn't understand a word of it and it was shit. 
or I didn't understand a word of it, and it was brilliant. Absolutely, <laughs> it entirely yeah. depends on on your your disposition to to think that kind of thing. Is yeah, brilliant. you've had you still had your money's worth. Yeah, <laughs> God, yeah, yeah. So. come out anyway. Baffled. So that yeah, that's the cinema in the year two thousand and twenty and and beyond. Yeah. Probably. If it exists. So look, the, the year, the year nineteen seventy-five. Um, nineteen seventy-five. The relief, the relief Funny of Bordeaux. I thought you were going to say the relief of Mafeking. The relief of Mafeking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No. So so um, so. How many years ago are we talking? Forty-five years ago. Is that right? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. it is. It's forty-five years ago. So if we do the usual calculation. If we remove 45 years from 1975, that takes us to the year 1920, yes? My God. Is that right? Yeah. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I've got that wrong. Takes us to the year 1930. What are we talking about? Takes us to the year 1930. Uh, So, you know, recording is kind of in its infancy. It's an extraordinary thing, really. Uh, One thing that struck me was that uh, you could play Born to Run, you know, the track Born to Run, alongside a record made nowadays, and it wouldn't sound madly old-fashioned, would it? Whereas if you, take no. a rec- if you took a record from 1930 and played it alongside Born to Run, they would have sounded as if they came from different civilizations, wouldn't they, really? Completely. You know, the, the technology had kind of moved on so much. No, but it's... Uh, yeah, that, it would I mean, have been the, almost a Dixieland jazz band. You would have been listening to the thing that still strikes me about Born to Run holds up copy of Born to Run for people who are actually watching this. And I can still never get over this. Is that uh, you know he arranged to, to have the pictures taken by what's he called Eric Eric Miel or uh, Eric, yes, I think it's Eric Miel, is uh, a New Jersey photographer, and uh, he just turned up to do the session with him and guitar and Clarence. You know, nobody else in the band, not so the rest of the band. Is, they didn't it, know about it at no, all. it's an incredible statement, isn't it? It's a, he, that's, he just decided, that's what you call a ballsy move. Yeah. He had just decided to get across, well, get across the fact that he was the leader of the group as well, wasn't he? You know, but, yeah. but, but it, was the, it was the idea that the brotherhood was summed up by the two of them and it didn't need anybody else to get that. Yeah, across. and also it's a kind of, you're, you're clearly, if you're, if you're having that kind of, set up you're clearly kind of keying into the to lots of uh, aspects of american musical history aren't you you know and the kind of soul band and stacks and the, and the review and all those kind of things it's a very different kind of image but the interesting thing is that that he'd, he'd made born to run the track born to run he'd he'd made nearly a year earlier and when he was you know he was living in, on his own in this quite shabby little house um, on the Jersey shore. <laughs> I don't know if this is just one of those things that he made up afterwards because it sounds great, but it, it's, it's nonetheless interesting because it illuminates his thinking, um, was that he used to go to, night, uh, go to sleep every night. He had a little record player next to his bed and he would go to sleep every night with the Ronettes or the Roy Orbison or... That's Dwayne right. Dedic- he, say, he says Black. that in his autobiography, doesn't he? <laughs> Black- and he- and like he goes there because he so wants like, to kind of absorb by osmosis. Like, he wants to absorb these records so that somehow they'll be in his DNA and he will write like, songs. It's like that. sleep learning, you know. Yeah. I think that was the idea. Yeah. You know, that I'll wake up in the morning and I'll be able to, I'll be able to do that. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because he'd made his two previous records, you know, which have flopped. They're completely flopped. 
And this was absolute last chance, uh, you know, the, the third album. And, uh, you know, if it hadn't worked, he would have been just returned to sender. And, uh, and he needed, he realized he needed a standout song. Uh, which he hadn't really had on the previous records. And so he poured everything into this, into this song, Born to Run, which they then went and found quite a cheap studio north of New York, studio completely off the beaten track where they could afford to be for a while. And this was when he was still, he was still managed by Mike Capel, you know, the previous manager that he fell out with so badly later. Um, and, and they started recording and they did the basic track for for Born to Run quite quickly. And what's what fascinates me about this is that, is that if you listen to it now, it's it's utterly dominated by the well the drumming and the guitar. You know, it starts with a rumbling drum, you know. Yeah. Clearly gonna be a record all about rhythm and all about all about pop music. You know, it's not gonna sound anything like what he did on his previous two records. And the amazing thing to me about the drumming is, is that it's played by Ernest Boom Carter, who was in the band then. And that's the only thing he ever recorded with them. He left soon afterwards. He obviously, he couldn't, he couldn't be spending months in the studio. He probably had a family to feed or something like that. So the only thing that Ernest Boom Carter ever recorded with the E Street Band that was, one track. was that one track. And he then spent, if you're going to pick one, that's, well, that, a, that's, that's pretty, the one. pretty good one to pick. But the interesting thing is, and this is Bruce Springsteen's kind of terrible problem, is he then spent six months doing everything in his power to kind of ruin it by just putting more and more and more stuff on it. It, it did uh, take that long to make, didn't it? He, well, he, he, he spent six months just playing with, it, with, with these tracks. And to the extent that Steve Van Zandt, because the... Um, you know, the signature guitar thing, da -ding, da -ding, you know, yeah. which is rings out still today. Steve Van Zandt had to say to him, you, you, you put so many instruments on this. People can't hear that guitar anymore. They can't hear it in the, in the way that you think they can hear it because you're hearing it from the point of view of somebody who knows they put it on there, whereas somebody coming to it fresh can't hear it anymore. And he had to kind of record it again, you know. Uh, that that guitar line and so he was completely losing sight of, of of when to stop which has always been his problem you know and so the record itself the full album didn't come out until pretty much a year later as you said you know sort of august august 1975 and it was it it saved him i mean it wasn't an enormous hit or anything like that but it did enough for uh, for cbf for columbia to want to, you know, continue with him. And by then he was getting a big enough reputation live. But but what's fascinating to me is that um, I think it's really, this is to be brutal. <laughs> you know, if you if you line up all the greats alongside each other, you know, yeah. Elvis Presley and the Beatles and God knows who. Born to Run, the single, is Bruce Springsteen's only great record it's an absolutely brilliant record it's it's inimitable it's what bottled makes that... lightning well, it, all right just... what makes that so brilliant well i think i think great records are moments in time you know they're just instants 
they, you know, the lightning in the bottle, you know, you just can't do them again the following day or anything like that. And, and even he, you know, and he plays, he's played it through the years, played it, probably plays it to this day when he goes back on stage and he'll do a very damn good job of it, but it won't be that. It won't be that thing, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and all the, you know, all the great geniuses of, of popular music, Smokey Robinson or whatever, how many great, great records? It's a small number, really, when you drill down, you know? There aren't many people who do more, do more than five, yeah? And so yeah, absolutely. It, and so, you know, you say there's loads of really good records by Bruce Springsteen, I don't know, there's Dancing in the Dark, there's Hungry Heart, there's all those things. But they're not absolutely as they're exceptional. Perfect, exactly. That is absolutely and it's also, but it's interesting that such an exceptional record would be the one that he laboured over for so long, because usually that's completely at odds yeah. with, with the yeah, way yeah. things work. It's the spontaneity, it's the, the little bit of magic that you capture in, in, in three or four minutes that can't be repeated, that usually uh, well, I think is it's, the enduring well, thing. Yeah, well, and I think a lot of that is Ernest Boom Carter. <laughs> you know, it's what he played in that first session yeah. in 1974 is still what, what thrills us today, but you know, forty-five years later—that's that's a that's a long old time. That is the word podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So, welcome back, uh, viewers and listeners, to uh, to uh, Dave and I, joined in fact now by our producer Magic Alex. We're there going to talk about uh, the concept of landfill indie. Landfill indie being a phrase. Invented by Andrew Harrison of uh, the Word magazine Parish in 2008. And uh, as you rightly pointed out the other day, Dave, Andrew Harrison also invented the term Britpop. Good they work. They did. It's very That's good very work. good work. And Landfill Indy, uh, this is a very, very spirited piece uh, by Vice, in defence of the fact that people routinely take the piss out of the whole concept of, of indie generally, you know, I do, I sub, do. Substandard. yeah, yeah. And this is, you know, these are groups. Uh, this is the Rifles, the Gillimots, you know, the Pigeon Detectives, Future Heads, Baby Shambles, the Kooks, the Maccabees, etc., the Fratellis. And I, I was thought, I thought of it broadly as kind of as four chord rotations, unpolished guitars, a bit of pop sensibility enough to get on the radio, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the point about this piece of many is that it says that. Basically, after the success of the Strokes, the block party and the Libertines, A&R charged out across the country. Sign anything remotely landfill indie. As they put it, white boys with weak jawlines playing in bands with names like, like problematic flavours of Walker's sensations, e.g. the Bombay Bicycle Club, Cajun Dance Party, etc. So the whole world is full of, as they put it, trilby-doff men singing about local boozers, university girlfriends in World War II. But they reckon this spoke to something uniquely pedestrian about the British experience that made it eternally irrelevant. And I think, I think that's a really good point. Because I think of landfill India as being part of a noble tradition about suburbia and about fallibility and about general uselessness of British people. That, you know, started off with, you know, the kinks and then there was Penny Lane and then the squeeze and the jam, the Pet Shop Boys, Blur, Pulp, etc. the streets. So I think it's a no, fantastically noble tradition and uniquely British. But we ought to ask Magic, I mean, you know, now you're here. Landfill Indy, well, how would you define the difference between landfill Indy and, and your normal Indy? I think the difference is just, it's just perspective. Um, it's not anything material for sure. I mean, I was growing up when uh, the landfill indie period was at its peak and, <laughs> <laughs> for better or worse, 
And so proud. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is your music, dear boy. Yeah, you know, to, to and why shouldn't you feel fond of it? Of course you did. This is the soundtrack to your exciting teenage life. Well, the thing was, um, these people weren't singing about girls and boys. They were singing about what was happening to everyone at the time in the country. You know, they were singing about their life, their normal lives. There's things which you would be talking about with your friends in a pub. Um, yeah. And it was eminently relatable. And it felt like they were talking about you and they were talking about something that was dear and relevant to you and uh, somehow making it sound really romantic. And it was, and the way they were doing it was quite aspirational, you know. Um, I think it's easy to deride people like Pete Doherty because of their personal lives, but, you know, that boy could write, he can write words. And the way he put things, the way he romanticised the very dullest uh, elements of British life around that time was was pretty aspirational. And it also made you feel like you were part of something. It gave you a sense of community, which I think all great pop music does, at least in this country. You know, um, it was it was a really good time. And I think it's it's easy to look back and see it also for what it was, which is derivative and unoriginal uh, and maybe watered down. But if you were living through it at the time and if you were of a certain age, it was so exciting. When Preston and The Ordinary Boys uh, released their first album, I grew up listening to The Jam, you know, when I was, when I was very young. Uh, and it suddenly felt like we got our own Paul Weller and he passed down the baton upon a cliff face and it was on fire. <laughs> You know, it was so <laughs> that's brilliant. But, but why it's so but, unkind? Because even Vice, who love it, talk about uh, landfill as being the, the family. It's like a family caravan holiday in August. Kind of rubbish, kind of a laugh, but largely unremarkable. It's unfair, isn't it? Because I mean, there were lots of movements that, that didn't have any particularly distinguished groups, but they're still fondly remembered. Are there any movements that didn't have any particularly distinguished groups? Because usually there are, aren't they? I mean, because everything, you know, my no, I don't mean many. I mean, I mean, only had a few. Okay, you know. okay, but I think I think that yeah. applies to everything. You know, that, that you, if you get a Mersey beat or psychedelia or whatever, punk rock. Yeah, there's, you know, there's two or three outstanding, and then there's landfill, as far as the eye can see. Yeah, That's there is. the way things work. Well, exactly. You said that about whereas, frog. You whereas said that about psychedelia. Landfill indie is is the only movement I know. If it's a movement, I know that is kind of proudly known by by uh, yeah, part of its name is uh, we're all rubbish. You know, landfill yeah. indie. There's too many of us. There's too many of us. Yeah. We're all kind of indistinguishable. And uh, you know, who are the Beatles of landfill indie? I was. Who are, go on. Is that the Maccabees? No, they they put the libertines. I would imagine. Oh, okay. oh right, good, oh, very right. good. Yes, every single subculture. When you get something that's really, really important and really all pervading, it it does get diluted by bands that aren't very good. The same oh, thing it's that. a fact of life. Fact of life. But <laughs> but the best ones are exceptional, and the best ones survive. All of those movements they happened again and again and again. Uh, but this, I, I'm trying to I'm trying to get an idea of who they. Uh, of who the big names are from this era, because <clears throat> you say the Libertines, they wouldn't be known to most people, whereas the big acts of kind of, I don't know, punk rock, the Sex Pistols and the Clash, are known to people. You know, well, they kind of they entered the mainstream. Go the on. The thing about Landfill Indie is a lot of those bands are bigger today than they were back then. So you've got bands like Milburn, who are part of the Sheffield set, Forever in the Shadow of the Arctic Monkeys, um, as you know, as it, as it mentions in the piece, you know, A and R were rushing out to provincial towns to sign 
whoever you know always the case though whatever big boom it always happens doesn't it and you always get far too many people who just aren't that distinguished and Milburn were one of those bands that were forever cursed by that, you know. Um, and they reformed, I believe, a few years ago. And now they're, well, before COVID, they were selling out arenas. Um, really? Wow. A, now, this, this is, this is going to move seamlessly on to a related topic, which is one of my favourites, which I don't think we've aired on this podcast. And um, I'd like to know if you two agree with me. I think in popular music nowadays, everybody's bigger years after the event than they are at the time of the event. Yes. But that's absolutely true. That's always true, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's always, it, it hasn't always been true. It wasn't true in the 70s. Well, no, because if, you know, if you think of somebody like, um, you know, like the, the jam, the jam kind of knocked it on the head. And, was it Wembley Arena they were playing? I think it was Wembley Arena around there. Something was it like, bigger than whatever. that? Whatever, yeah. But if they came back, 30 years later or whatever, they'd be playing a massive stadium circuit, wouldn't they? Because there's been 30 years. Because All the, the people who liked them originally will go and see them anyway, but they've had 30 years and to there's a far, a more there's people. A, yeah, but there's a far greater... The greatest constituency for popular music nowadays is people who missed it the first time around. Yeah. Whenever the first time around was, doesn't matter. Whether the first time around was 1965, 1985, 2005, doesn't yeah. matter. Because it takes that long for word to get out to everybody. And then it, everybody eventually wants to take off. I've been to see Santa, the Stone Roses. I've been to see the Rolling Stones. I've been to see absolutely everybody. And that's what happens. And it's a really curious thing, which is why nobody ever breaks up. Or, or if they break up, they reform. Because there's a market for them, which is bigger than the market was that was there at the time when they were... They were kind of young and inspired. Isn't that true, Alex? Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. I mean, the Libertines are a great example because uh, they're bigger now than they ever were first time around. You know, yeah. the first time around, they might have been really influential, which they were, you know, but um, they were influential um, within the context of a subculture um, and not a, a whole generation of music lovers. Now that, you know, uh, I remember their management was... Um, was told that their their Hyde Park gig, I think six years ago now, was 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 madness because they'd never do it, um, and they sold out all their tickets within six minutes or something like that. This is a band that uh, had last broken up, I think, five years before. It's, it's absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? Because yeah. you, you used to think that the the standard pop tra trajectory was, you know, two or three years hot, and then slowly nobody's interested in it anymore, you know. It's not like that anymore. You know, it's two, three years hot, dips a bit, then it goes, ooh, it just grows over a long period of time. Which is why it's unimaginable that the groups who haven't got back together won't eventually get back together, don't you think? Because Well, they they've all got really strong personal reasons as to why they won't. But the, the uh, amount of money, the amount oh. of money involved and the, the feeling that you would go to your grave without ever feeling what that was like to go back yeah. and play on the stadium. I, that's true. You've got to admit, I mean, Paul Weller, you know, David Byrne, these various people, Morrissey, you know, are, are they really, at the back of their minds must be thinking, I, I, I would wonder what it would be like. Yeah, but I, I, I suppose it just shows in those small number of, the, small number of cases of holdouts who yeah. are not doing it, there's a lot of bitterness there, isn't there? Oh, yeah, there is. <laughs> there must be 
you know, whereas everybody but else gets... You can get, measure, you can calibrate how much that business must be yes, yes, if they're turning down 70 million yeah, dollars. it's 20 million dollars worth of business. Exactly. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Now the other hot, hot ancient music business story um, just recently. Elton John gave this interview. Didn't oh he? yes, oh, yeah. Come on, tell us about that. Well, Elton John was talking about, he's talking about particularly about Father John Misty and Conan Gray. And he, particularly Conan Gray, he said, Conan Gray, he's from America and he's the only person in, in the American Spotify top 50 to actually write a song without anybody else. Really? One person. This is what he's claiming. And, you know, he says, Elton says that these days, every song has about four or five writers on the track. And uh, he said, you look at most records in the charts, they're not real songs. I mean, there is true. I mean, there was a, a Liam Payne song called Strip That Down, which I think includes 15 credits. Now, some of those obviously for maybe for samples or whatever, but 15 writers were involved in it. So 15 people are getting money when that was a hit, you know. And I could see his point. I mean, he obviously he wrote with Bernie Taupin, you know, and still does. But, you know, that that the idea that it needs a a factory of people to produce top lines, melodies, you know, structures, rhythms, fine samples and things must be disheartening for somebody who started out in an era when it was just a couple of people with a typewriter and piano. Yeah, no, I mean, this, well, this is, uh, you know, reflecting a, a mode of writing that's written about really well in this book, which I was just digging out today. Uh, the Song Machine Inside the Hit Factory, John Seabrook's book. Oh, it's we fantastic. Taught. We did a it's thing about that. Didn't we? Yeah, fantastic book. Have you read that, Alex? Sorry, guys, I muted Alec. myself. <laughs> you, were, you what? <laughs> I, I muted myself. I put myself back in the corner. Oh, right. Oh, right. <laughs> okay. Like, well, we might Have you read you, The Alex? Hit Factory by John Seabrook? It's an really? amazing book. And it's it's all about you know the Backstreet Boys and Max Martin and the and uh, Britney Spears and that whole way of writing hits of generating hits that they'd done in this kind of almost industrial way, which he which is described as the track and hook system. So somebody does the track, somebody else does the hook, somebody else does the top line, and you just add layers all the time. Uh, and that is how the overwhelming majority of records in the pop chart nowadays are done. I was just looking yeah. at the chart this morning, and that out of the top ten, I think six are credited to so-and-so featuring so-and-so, and that's just the performance. And so in each case there, there's a writing credit attached to it. 
I'll, I'll, Go on, Alex. I'll tell you actually that. Um, so, so in my in my CD double life, I, I dabble in in the murky world of music licensing, and uh, <laughs> I recently had to clear a track, um, a sample, on on a track, which contained no less than nineteen riders. On the sample. Yeah, it was a nightmare. Um, so you were doing you were there was a track, yeah. and then. The track included the sample, yeah. and the sample had, had 19, 19 right. So, so can we ask what percent? You're talking about 0.001% of the profit or something would go to somebody who was one of the 19 people on a sample? I mean, is, is it that's astonishing? It's bonkers. I mean, the, the percentages are all slightly different. So one, one, one party got slightly more than the rest, for example. But um, yeah, yeah. And, and also the sample contained a sample, which... Which, uh, oh God! This is just a so. So if you if you'd put all that together, some of the original track, your sample, and then the sample that contained the sample, is it possible? I'm just guessing here that the total number of people who might have some kind of claim on that whole thing might be as many as thirty. Yeah, it's absolutely mental. I mean, can you imagine a world where eventually, you know, in your in your standard cafe, you've got twenty people making the tea? Do you know what I mean? One person for the tea bag, one person to hold the mug. <laughs> you wouldn't do that, would you? Why would you do that with a song? It just completely blows my mind. But it happens, and it, and it and it's except now in its defence, and I think Elton's got a fair point, but but it's a reflection of just how different, definitely records are made nowadays. But in the defense of the, in defense of that system, for years, I've been saying, and Mark and I have been saying on this podcast, that how come Lou Reed is the author of Walk on the Wild Side? Why isn't Herbie Flowers the, you know, the co-author of Walk on the Wild Side? Why aren't the girls well, who sang do-do-do, do-do, you know, whatever? Yeah. Because they contributed as much to that as... As, well, there was famously there was a court case with Herbie Flowers, wasn't there? Which was if Herbie Flowers did actually get a percentage, I think. I know he never got he never got a percentage. <laughs> did he not? I thought he did. I thought he, I thought uh, it was a court case. I wouldn't have thought so. I, I there's, don't know. There's, a, there's a difference between interpreting a part and and composing yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. It's a bit of a grey area, but um, but, but what we're moving towards, it seems to me, those credits that Elton is complaining about, they're not for writing a song. Therefore, making a record, really, because you know they're all contributing their little bit, which is sent down the line as a sound file. It's not written down as a piece of music. And so, the tradition that Elton came from was Tim Panelli, was two people in a room with a yeah, completely, yeah. That was the way they did it. We now move to something completely different. And so, you could argue that your nineteen credits are genuinely reflecting what people did to play some part in it. But it's not standard songwriting as we would traditionally have known it. Well, I think the, mo- the mode of writing's changed. You know, people are writing using software like Logic and Pro Tools. And, you know, whereas, you know, t- in the Tim Pan Alley days and way beyond, you'd have a person, two people in a room with an instrument and you'd get the body of a song and the song would be a form rather than um, a very specific set of parts. And I think yeah. your writing has changed to the point where the song is a specific set of parts. I mean, I, uh, but that's it. But you now sublet <coughs> each of those jobs to somebody responsible for those, those specific parts, don't you? Yeah. So, so you get a melody expert to write the melody top line. 
you get a, somebody, a, a, a chord expert to produce a, a structure. You get somebody producing a particular rhythm. And you just, you just sublet that, don't you? You say, right, I want something on here that'll work. Yes. So you're, get, you're getting in experts in every single discipline, which is a weird way of working. But it's, you know, that's, that's the pressure of trying to have a commercial success. It is. It's, it's immensely competitive. I suppose uh, it's it up because, you know, it, it, it kind of makes sense in a way. Because in the old world, for example, you know, the, the, the writer of the song would get his band in a room and he'd say, here are the chords and interpret this and whatever went around it. You know, um, you know, you could say that the baseline of this charming man is, is absolutely integral to, to the. Um, it is. You know, absolutely. Um, but of course, Andy Rock didn't get paid as a writer for that. He got plonked in a room with Morrissey and Marr and got told to play something to these chords. But now yeah. you get the bass player playing something to these chords and, and being acknowledged for it in a way that perhaps they weren't previously. So, you know. Well, that, well that's my point. You know, yeah. it, may be, it may be a fairer split. Yeah. These ludicrous divisions may be a fairer split than what was, uh, you know, the split in the in the past. So, you know. That's, in, you know, that's a rare case of me being in defence of modern practice. <laughs> What's happened to us? <laughs> I thought we were grumpy old men. It's because we've got a youngster on board. <laughs> yeah, we're in our best behaviour. The Word Podcast, one of the few things you really need in life. So there was a piece in Vulture, uh, the New York magazine, about, uh, about music that has been requested by Trump, or used by Trump, actually, without permission, uh, various uh, campaigns and rallies. And about the various musicians who <laughs> who've objected to the fact that their their music's being used, and uh, I've just scribbled down a few of the names: Tom Petty. I went back down. Panic at the Disco, High Hopes. Neil Young's Rockin' in the Free World. There's a Rihanna song. I can't remember which one now. Elton John's Rocket Man and Tiny Dancer. REM, It's the End of the World. Uh, Stones, You Can Always Get What You Want. Guns and Roses, Sweet Child of Mine. Pharrell Williams, Happy. We Are the Champions by Queen. There's millions of them. All Right Now by Free, George Harrison's Here Comes the Sun, uh, Prince, you know, Purple Rain, etc. I think it's a really interesting story, and I kind of feel I feel a bit sorry for these guys, actually. I know it's really good publicity. If you're an obviously right, yeah. well-known... It's, not, it's not really good publicity. If all. you're a left-wing group, you know, like R.E.M. and Neil Young, then you wouldn't imagine that, um, in some respects, that people would expect you. Uh, to have to be to vote any other way, but you've got to feel for mainstream acts like Queen or, or Rihanna or whatever who, who clearly have Republican voters buying their records, and so it's kind of miserable to be forced out of the closet and to have to make a public statement about what your political allegiance is. Don't you think? I mean, I, I, think I feel a lot of sympathy for them. Oh, absolutely, it must be it's wretched, and um, it's interesting in America that they've they've objected strenuously through lawyers and all the normal channels, and whatever. But as far as I can work out, it doesn't make any difference at all because I think the law in America is different. It's a public building, you know. These things take place. If you're on the broadcast television, is a different thing. But if you're in a public building, you can play any piece of music you like. Yeah. Um, whereas in Britain, I think you you have to be you have to be permitted to uh, to to play those particular tunes uh but in america they've objected uh, you know until they're blue in the mouth <laughs> it hasn't it hasn't made any difference at all and so you um, can still carry on using that he gets well, well it's quite interesting that 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 it what it illuminates about trump's modus operandi which is you can do anything once 
And, you know, if people object and you can't do it again, well, all right, you just do something different. You know yeah. what I mean? Because but here's you can the... do it once, that's true. Until somebody complains, you can do but, it. Yeah, but, but you keep, all right, you keep on doing it. Because what are they going to do? Donald Trump throughout his entire career has worked on the basis of sue me. You yeah. know? And, and in the end, most people don't because it costs them too much money and it's too time consuming. And by the time it gets to court, everybody's forgotten about what it was there on, in the first place. And if you don't mind being really unpopular with those people, it's not a problem at all. Yeah. And yeah. he doesn't mind because here's the point. As somebody said recently on social media, somebody, uh, what's the name? I can't remember. The Russian, the Russian former chess player is now a, very trenchant pundit on matters Spassky? like this. No, not Spassky. No. Um, oh, I know the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, say, he said, um, he says, causing offence is the point. Yeah. And that's why Trump does what he does. If he wants to cause offence with those people over there who appear to be rich and powerful and, and entitled and so forth, that's great. I don't have a problem with that at all. I don't want them on my side because my people feel good about the fact that I offend those people over Completely. there. Completely. So it's confirming more, what his people the think. More, he just the loves more those, those people, people I offend, the better it is for And me. the more they complain about it, the more, more uh, inept and, and inconsequential and pointless that complaining seems because, you know, obviously the left wing complain volubly about absolutely everything. But does it ever seem to change anything is the problem, isn't it? Well, it's all good for him. Yeah. It works for him far better than it works for them. That's the terrible, yeah. terrible irony of it, you know. So, uh, anyway. Who's, whose music has been Enough approved? of Donald Trump, I can't bear. Whose music has been approved by Trump, apart from Twisted Sister? Twisted Sister. Was that you... approved? Yeah, I think it, it was. Really? There was a oh, We're right. not going to take it by Twisted Sister. I think they said it was okay for him to use them. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is he doesn't seem to want to use any of the music. Not that I think he has much to do with this. I'm sure it's just some somebody in his team. Um, he doesn't seem to want to use the music of the very small number of musicians who appear to support him. Like, uh, you know, what do you call him? Um, yeah, like who are Ted, they? What, Ted, Ted Nugent. Nugent. Ted Nugent. Oh, God. I've gone blank. Ted Nugent. Two or three others. And uh, that's it. <laughs> and uh, that's it. Yeah. He's not bothered about using their music at all. Whereas, uh, you know, they're using the music of, uh, of, of people who don't apparently approve of him. That's, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. So, um, I tell you what, very special day today. Um, I, I was talking to a mutual friend recently on one of these on whatsapp or whatever and she said when did you last see mark and i said well i was thinking must have been the other day and then i worked it out no it's six months ago no it's march since so you all right so it's five march months. i think it was march the 9th when we interviewed pete perfides <laughs> pete perfides and dan that's Franklin. a long time it? <laughs> it seems an awful long time i ago. know i know so that's the last time we were in the same same physical space and today we're meeting at friends aren't we yeah. socially distanced yeah. in a garden yeah. and uh, and i've got i've got a question to ask you about your sartorial arrangements because the weather's changed a bit now are you wearing shorts or long trousers? I am not wearing shorts today. I have to say, and I don't imagine you are too, because the temperature has dropped. It's plummeted, and on Friday, I I tweeted, um, you know, the shorts are going off all over 
all over the UK. They I were... saw that. There was quite a lot of resistance to that notion. Yeah, it? It mainly... saying, I've been in shorts since March and I'm sticking with it. I'm going to go right through till the end of October. And because it's very hard to take them off if you hadn't been required to go to any business meetings or anything, which most of us haven't. No. I've been living in shorts for God knows how long. Absolutely. Absolutely. And... Uh... And people really uh, take umbrage, don't they? Uh, the yeah. idea that you might wear long trousers before November or whatever. People have just gone crazy about this, particularly people in the north of England, I note, who now, who now take it as a kind of note of pride. You know, They accuse me of being a soft southerner because I decided to put on a pair of long trousers when it got really chilly in, the, in late August. That's they a haven't classic. done that at all. That's a classic hard northern attitude. Isn't it? it is. They, T-shirts they, in November, you know. Yeah, yeah. Packet of embassy twisted into the sleeve. Packet of yeah. embassy in the sleeve, yeah. and uh, and it made me think again of one of my favourite short subjects in pop: shorts in pop music. Shorts in pop music. Short music, because as we've said before, our fathers, although your dad probably was a big shorts wearer, because he was. He was he was a big kind of outdoors man, wasn't he? He was. He liked. He liked to uh, big camping like, holiday man. Camping holidays in places where the where the, the temperature rather plummeted. My yeah. dad not so much like that. I don't think my dad even owned a pair of shorts. Um, and in that, he was not unique back in the fifties and sixties. You well, tweeted a photograph of your grandparents, I think, on a on a on a, on a beach holiday, where they're literally wearing. I think your fa- grandfather's wearing kind of. I, I may even have a waistcoat on, but he's certainly got a tie and, grand- and a shirt. My maternal grandfather, Leonard Rollinson, I have a photograph of him taken on the beach of Bridlington, I think, and he's sitting in a deck chair, and he's wearing, okay, a pair of stout brogues, argyle socks. Okay, a three-piece suit with a you know waistcoat, properly buttoned, a shirt a, with a stiff collar, stiff collar, and handkerchief a tie, in his top and pocket. a tie, possibly even a tie pin in the tie. Yeah, handkerchief in his top pocket. Over this is a coat and a flat cap. That's on the beach. Yeah, that's how he. That's how he tanned. <laughs> <laughs> So, so straight off to the rock pools for him. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's incredible, isn't it? That's the Yorkshireman. I know, I know, I know. No, my okay. pa used to wear shorts, absolutely. But then again, Southerners, we're from Hampshire. But in, in, in pop music, Andrew Ridgely, a classic, obviously. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Angus Young, obviously for cartoonish theatrical reasons. Big shorts. Man. Yeah. Dennis Wilson, off duty, certainly. Maybe he wore shorts on stage. Dennis Wilson, Wilson, I think, used to wear the shorts on stage quite a lot to yeah. drum because it made sense, actually. That yeah, probably, yeah, it would have done. Would've but done. there are, I mean, who are the other shorts wearers? Well, Pearl Jam, I think. I think there was certainly some kind of grunge group. I'm pretty sure Mudhoney. I have a mental image of Mudhoney with kind of uh, knee-length shorts with big pockets all over them. Right, but right. Carter. In terms of the uh, car for the unstoppable, oh, yes, of course, those were major, major shorts wearers. Yeah, Uh, Axel Rose, obviously. But the one I think that gets forgotten and deserves uh, mention in this context is the great Bob Weir. Oh, of course, Bob Weir, the Grateful Dead, Bob Weir, the Grateful Dead, who was absolutely their poster boy, and not much, uh, not much competition for that slot, really. (laughs) No disrespect to the rest (laughs) of the group. I don't think Phil Lesh was giving him a run. I don't think Pigpen was giving him a big run for his money. <laughs> Certainly Uncle Jerry wasn't there. No oil painting. 
but, but I mean, he was the complete package, wasn't he? And he used to go and, and uh, he used to wear very, very short shorts. This is the yes, days before knee length shorts, incredibly he did. short shorts. He did. There's Robert hair, Plant off his hair in a ponytail. Hair in a ponytail. I'm wearing shorts on stage. No, not on stage, but you know, famously. Yeah, he used to see them, he used to see those pictures, hilarious pictures of um, British rock stars in the 70s. Uh, would would get involved in pickup games of football. That's right. In parks in Los Angeles towards yeah. the end of tours, and then they would wear the most abbreviated shorts you have ever seen in your life. There are pictures of Rod Stewart and Robert Plant on that um, on that football pitch, and they're barely wearing anything. They look like they're wearing underpants, don't they? <laughs> yes, they're absolutely. And, they're the, and the snugger form, uh, budgie smugglers. You know, they playing for, they're effectively That's... playing playing football in budgie smugglers. They are. So listen, <laughs> if you if you want to add to our uh, list of shorts wearers in pop, we're always interested in hearing from uh, from people. Uh, you know, all feedback is is gratefully. Uh, received and uh this is the point in the podcast where i i uh, promote the virtues of being one of our patreon supporters who are who are legion and growing and there are various benefits from being a patreon supporter if if you delight in looking at mark and me doing this rather than just listening to us you can do this as who patron. wouldn't <laughs> And we should mention we have two new annual books. There's an annual. Oh, annual, right. Uh, There's an annual, annual patron supporter with a 15% discount, I understand. That's right. So we who, should who mention are, we've got Samantha Veal. Oh, God right. bless her. Samantha Veal and also uh, Richard Lewison oh, are right. our annual uh, patron supporters. And we've also got other uh, other patrons. We are Belinda Shaw. Brilliant to have her aboard. And Callum Beath and James and Kiel Ringstrand and Clive Morell. So, so that's we're, good. Well, we're looking forward to hearing more from those people and probably them joining us on our um, Friday evening Patreon supporters only quiz, which is, you know, goes from strength to strength. Um, and also, you can, as a Patreon supporter, be in the room when we do our Word in Your Ear uh, recordings with authors. And we recently did one of those with uh, Kenneth Womack talking about John Lennon. Uh, we're doing one next week with Justin Quirk, talking about his book about the the uh, the, the glorious glam rise of, of glam metal. Yep. And we've got more of these coming up in the next few weeks. And uh, you can also subscribe in, in euros and uh, US dollars, if you're so minded. So come on down. We'd love to have you join <laughs> Involved. us. Cheers. Brilliant. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. <laughs>